Hi, everybody, and welcome to another Smart Cities Week podcast. My name is Adam Beck, and I'm chairman of Smart Cities Week. Also, my day job is the executive director of the Smart Cities Council here in the Australia-New Zealand region, uh, and delighted to bring another podcast to you, this time featuring uh, our major keynote speaker for Smart Cities Week DC uh, 2019, and that is Jean Case, CEO of the Case Foundation, Foundation, also Chairman of the National Geographic Society. Jean, thanks so much for taking some time to speak to us today. It's great to be with you, Adam. I've really been looking forward to it. No, thank you. We uh, we can't wait to have you uh, join us on the on the first of October in DC. But um, Jean, we've got listeners scattered all across the world. Um, some of them, of course, uh, may not have heard of the Case Foundation. Would you mind just kicking off by giving us a very brief bio of the Case Foundation and its purpose? Sure. Well, when my when I retired from technology, together with my husband, we co-founded our family foundation, which is the Case Foundation, about 21 years ago. And we have a focus, which is to invest in people and ideas that can change the world. And with that, really, as our mission, we've been engaged in a deep amount of work through the years that are locally focused or city focused, as well as globally focused. I um. Uh, I, I note there, and also in your bio, when I was doing a little bit of research, your your sort of background and history in the in the tech industry. Um, uh, what has or how has that shaped your approach to philanthropy? Um, and of course, you you you've you've been in this for quite some time now. Um, how have you evolved in your approach to philanthropy, based on your professional experience and and also sort of what you've been learning over the years? Sure. Well, I would say our background in tech really did play a significant role as we came into philanthropy. You know, we both had an entrepreneurial background, having worked for startups. Uh, I ended up uh, at AOL uh, and played a role in developing that service. Of course, my husband was a co-founder of AOL. And there we saw that at the end of the day, what entrepreneurs do is they solve problems. So in some ways, it was kind of natural to move from the private sector to philanthropy. It was tilting the lens just a little bit wider, I would say, in terms of using other tools to solve challenges. And I think that probably was the, the greatest influence we had as we formed the foundation. You know, I felt like a newbie when I got started in philanthropy. I felt like I didn't have sort of the language or the background that others did because I'd come out of this private sector background. But you know what, I learned it had really been valuable for me to spend those years in the private sector because we could see that business for the most part and investment for the most part was not being called in to address you know, serious issues, whether they be at the city level or even a global level. So right from the start, we really believed that business and entrepreneurs had to have a seat at the table. I, um, I wanna build off that and sort of share with you um, in a little way, my, my sort of reciprocal uh, sort of journey as well in my career. So I, I, you know, I started off as a humble social planner. Um, so came, uh, came at my career early on from sort of the social side of things, got deeply into sustainability. Um, and I kind of, I came to tech quite late in my career um, because I, I really felt particularly with respect to, for example, the climate crisis, I just felt that, you know, there had to be, more enablers or, or, or a better way in which we can sort of solve some of these really um, challenging um, 
sort of agendas that we have in the world. And, and so I, I, I'm just sort of loving this idea of, of, of tech, which you know, has a very particular personality and history, but it can really be married so closely with the idea of social change and creating movements for, for sort of, you know, either a better planet or, or, or better people. Can you share with me those, those sort of really, in some way, divergent issues, you know, social impact, technology, what's been your experience and journey and what are you really liking about those agendas really sort of building greater connective tissue these days? Yeah, well, you know, when we uh, really were part of building the internet revolution, we talked about democratizing access to ideas, information and communication. Mm. And if you look at the history of the Case Foundation, we've sort of pivoted just slightly, but a lot of those same roots are there. Really from the start, we wanted to use our resources and assets to unleash the talents and the resources of citizens, basically, who had great ideas but might have been sitting on the sidelines until called in, if you will, to service. And we've just been blown away in the various initiatives we've undertaken in partnership with others. Often we have cross-sector initiatives, which means that we have a private sector partner we have a public sector partner, and we have nonprofits and other philanthropies playing a role too. And I've just been really jazzed, honestly, Adam, to see what happens when you call people to be problem solvers in their own communities. Mm, absolutely. I, um, uh, your description there around you know, what is a very broad ecosystem of stakeholders within the work that you do, li likewise, in this sort of smart cities agenda and movement, we've got a very broad church of, um, of, of sectors, of disciplines. Um, it's, it's certainly uh, a, a, a group of people that thrive on disrupting and, and trying to innovate a lot of entrepreneurs. Um, Jean, you've got, uh, you, you've, you've sort of got a, a, an idea and approach that you, you sort of describe as inclusive entrepreneurship. Can you share a little bit about sort of what that means and how that potentially plays out in our communities and cities and what it looks like? Sure. Well, when um, we're talking about inclusive entrepreneurship, we're really looking at sectors that have been more or less left on the sidelines or ignored as we've built, you know, great innovations here in the United States and around the world. And, you know, some of those segments include women and people of color, for instance. And the data is um, pretty dire. So last year in the United States, venture capital, which we look at as sort of the jet fuel to help young companies grow quickly, only 2% of that went to female founders. That's pretty shocking in this day. 98% went to men. It's more dire for African-Americans where less than 1% of the venture capital went to a company with an African-American founder. Um, and more broadly, people of color, whether it be you know, Latinos or others, just aren't getting their same share. You know, the interesting thing about that is if you look at sort of capitalism more broadly or innovation more broadly, you'd say the most successful companies are our Fortune 500 companies here in the United States. And, you know, the fact of the matter is most of those Fortune 500 companies were founded across our nation. Another area we focus on in inclusive entrepreneurship is place. And there, what's happened is about 80% of venture capital has just gone to three places 
New York, Massachusetts, and California, even though our deep innovation and business history of success is largely represented between the coasts. So it's a time where I think we put too many eggs in a basket here in the United States. We've seen the same thing as we travel globally and we're doing all we can to spread the word and you know, to empower accelerators and incubators who are bringing entrepreneurs of color or female entrepreneurs to the table. And um, I'd imagine, Jean, that in some of those um, underrepresented groups, those that those critical sort of um, sectors that that aren't necessarily represented. I mean, unlocking the the potential, the the energy, the um, the innovation within those those voices would be uh, would be significant. Yeah, it really would be. But more importantly, I think it's you know an economic and innovation imperative because as we said at the beginning of this talk. At the end of the day, entrepreneurs are good at solving problems, and usually those are problems they've lived or are familiar with. So when we think about the next generation of innovation, it's really exciting to think about bringing in sort of new co cohorts who've lived different problems than the elites on the coast. And we might see actually more of a democratization of um, innovation. And I love to tell the story about a, a company in Africa called Hello Tractor um, that really addresses the needs of smallhold farmers. As you might imagine, most tractors in the United States are not made for someone who might have a hectare or two of land, and they're quite expensive. And Hello Tractor provides a small format tractor that is shared by a community. So, you know, Alice can use it on Saturday and Joe can use it on Monday and only use the tractor for the hours that they need it. And it's appropriate for their smallhold farms. So that's a really great example. That was an African, of course, who created that, that company. And he did so because he saw unique problems that maybe here in the U.S. we wouldn't think about. I love, um, I love those stories of, um, of, of being able to really lift up opportunity for those those underrepresented, uh, those underrepresented voices. Um, in in sort of transitioning the conversation now, Jean, uh, but but in line with that, um, your your new book, Be Fearless, um, and your five principles, um, I found um, ex exciting and, and rewarding uh, in in reading. I mean, I, I'm I'm uh, I'm here in Australia and um, we have very different sort of conditions at times around um, philanthropy or lack of. Uh, and indeed, we're feeling, I suppose, if I go to one key issue, the climate crisis, you know, we're, we're feeling it as, as you are, but, but we feel it a lot down here in Australia. And um, uh, that idea of being fearless, I don't think can be, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, underscored enough at the moment with that uh, with that agenda. Can you can you share with us a little bit? Um, I, I'd like to sort of hear a little bit around what led you to to write the book. Um, share with share with us that that sort of bio of the book, and, and I want to then go further a little bit more into the principles. But but tell us the journey of, of, of leading up to the book and and what inspired you. Sure. Well, you know we've talked a lot about our work at the Case Foundation and trying to unleash the assets, the resources, and the talents of others. You know, I was born in a town called Normal. <laughs> Normal <laughs> is a small town. Um, and although today I serve as, uh, you know, the co-founder and CEO 
philanthropy. I actually started life receiving philanthropy. Um, and so, you know, no matter where I went, whether it was starting out in my small town or in my travels around the world, one thing I would see is that people everywhere have great ideas. But in some cases, they just don't believe they can be the ones to take that idea forward. A voice, you know, plays in their head that I'm not smart enough or, or you know, I'm not that or I need this. But truth is, when you look across the spectrum at entrepreneurs and at innovators and change makers, there is no model. We conducted some research about seven years ago to take a look at the core qualities of change makers and innovators and entrepreneurs. And it turns out, instead of being, oh, having the right degree or coming from a big city or having money, these five principles emerged as the common standard for anyone who broke through with success. And we call them five principles for a life of breakthroughs and purpose. And quickly, you know, it starts with making a big bet, being bold and taking risks, making failure matter, you know, reaching beyond your bubble, which we should talk about, but that goes to that whole go to the unexpected, go to people who are on the sidelines, whose voices you need and whose talents you need at the table. And finally, let urgency conquer fear. So no matter who's listening today, I can tell you, if you're out there, no matter your background or what you think you have, you could be qualified in many ways you don't understand to bring forward the next great idea. Can I ask you, the following question of the five principles, all critically important. Is, is there one that is kind of your favorite? And, and for what reason is it your favorite? Yeah, well, you know, it's actually tied to something that's very much in the news today. And I believe it's in the news globally, but it's overwhelming the news in the United States. So the principle is let urgency conquer fear. Mm -hmm. And time and time again, when I see people break through, you know, where someone would look at them and never suspect that they could bring, you know, a world changing idea forward. It's usually because they had this you know, almost passion, this burning in their soul, a sense of urgency to either fix something or address a challenge. And today, you know, playing out in a very real way while we're recording this, of course, most recently, um, the hurricane in the Bahamas hit, Hurricane Dorian, and we saw Chef Jose Andres, who is a celebrated global chef, go down there and set up kitchens. He has done this in almost all recent modern natural disasters in Puerto Rico when Hurricane Maria hit. He had such a burning sense of urgency, he ended up feeding nearly four million Puerto Ricos. Wow. Puerto Rico. wow after that uh, disaster. So we just see this playing out in really, really big ways where someone says, there's a problem and I've got to solve it, or there's an opportunity and I feel it burning in me, that urgency, and I'm going to chase it now. That, um, that, was, that was my favorite. I, I use that word urgency uh, a lot, uh, particularly in the work that we do at the Smart Cities Council. You know, the, the, there's an urgency for some some deep, uh, deep change. Um, I, this is an interesting question, I think, um, but I'd like your view on this. How, how do these, how do these principles translate to government and in particular policymakers, if that makes yeah. sense? It's a really great question. And in the same way I said earlier that we've really tried to use our resources or whatever we can bring to the table to unleash the talents of others, that has actually included governments. We've worked um, for a long time 
time with local cities in different ways. When social media was first coming on the scene, we trained up a series of mayors across the United States so that they then could unleash their citizens to help them do better citizen service. In the federal government here in the United States, we did something called contests and grand challenges. And there's a great story that comes out of that, Adam. In that scenario, the Pre President Obama wrote an executive order for our federal agencies to try to use contests and grand challenge challenges as a way to engage citizens across the nation in the challenges the federal government was dealing with. Well, one of our aid organizations, USAID, was on the front lines of the Ebola crisis soon after we trained everyone up. And it turns out they did an Ebola suit challenge. And the reason they did was at the time of the crisis, they realized the Ebola suit that the caregivers were using was a real problem. So there's a gathering in Baltimore, Maryland at Johns Hopkins and a wedding dress designer signed up for the challenge. And you go, what? Wow. <laughs> She probably was the only wedding dress designer <laughs> in the any of the nation at the time. Well, it turns out her team won. And she said, look, if you can build a bra, you can build a bridge. Mm. And it turns out the team later said they won the challenge, that they never would have won that challenge without the unique perspective of a citizen coming in with different skills who deals with outfits every day, how to get things on and off quickly, making flexible environments in one outfit, et cetera. And to me, it's just a great story of not only unleashing the federal government to drive towards innovation and call citizens to the table, but how citizens can come in and really have an outsized contribution as they help government solve problems. Mm, absolutely. I, um, I, I, I have recently um, got to love a lot more the UN Sustainable Development Goals. It's kind of been part of, you know, what else could we be using in the smart cities movement to help us, you know, direct our action and investment into the most sort of important places and for the most important outcomes. Is is sort of the, the UN SDGs or, or other kind of global frameworks or blueprints an important part in helping us sort of, um, you know, really, really break through or break out and, and, you know, does it help us be fearless? What's the role of those type of, yeah. you know, real, you know, some think, you know, they're so high and meaningless yet, you know, rallying around a, a real common purpose could be surely quite powerful. Yeah, I'll tell you where I really see them potentially playing a strong role, Adam. Obviously, more broadly in those that are focused on development every day. But outside of that, in the investing community, you know, we've been deeply engaged in impact investing and trying to grow that movement. Very exciting news. Just in 2018, the assets under management grew to half a trillion dollars, and they've been doubling every year. So it's well on its way to the mainstream. But as an impact investor myself, I use the SDG goals to measure where am I in my investments? How many of them are lining up with the goals that I am most passionate about? And we're seeing now some invest, particularly impact investing organizations and some corporations really reporting out annually against a framework of the SDGs. And you know, that's just a whole different mindset, isn't it? From the way we've typically looked at only financial returns and not more broadly on the impact our capital can have. Are you feeling that um, we, we are 
transitioning and pivoting to that, uh, you know, more inclusive, more truly representative model of, of sort of valuing, um, valuing sort of economic sort of input and productivity. You know, we are moving away from traditional metrics like GDP is that whole impact investing, you know, re recreating the, the model of what we value working it's resonating are we gaining traction we are definitely gaining traction as i said assets under management doubled there's still a fraction of you know the total assets under management in the in the world but there are a couple of key trends we're paying attention to so even on days where i might get discouraged that there's not enough progress i pull back and i try to go to 40,000 feet and i'll give you an example there are two sectors largely driving the impact investing movement and that is women and millennials you know we've always known them to be sort of different creatures in terms of how they look at using their capital first as consumers they're much more conscious consumers um, and now that they're coming into wealth on their own, and there will be an enormous wealth transfer taking place in the coming decade or two, um, we are seeing them deploy their capital in a very conscious way around issues they care deeply about. They don't necessarily want to in any way um, compromise their returns, but they do want to make sure they know what's in their wallet and that they're using their capital in a way that's good for the world. So again, it looks slow, but the movements we've always been engaged in always look slow until they're not, right? And there is a tipping point at which that hockey stick starts to go in the air. And I have you know, been engaged in impact investing and trying to help drive the movement together with partners, gosh, for a really long time now. And I really believe that we are close now, meaning just years away from that tipping point. And I think it will change capitalism. And I think the train has left the station and those that haven't gotten on will either be left behind or will eventually. Mm, I've got two, um, I've got two teenage daughters and um, I, I'm absolutely astounded at how they just generally uh, approach life, you know, somewhat fearless hyper-connected, um, th 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 there's just so much baggage that they, uh, that they don't have. Um, and I, it worries me at times because, because they are uh, so potentially sort of amazing. Um, but I think also it's just such a, a huge opportunity that, that not, only, not only we embrace sort of socially, but uh, I, I can only imagine from from a global economic perspective um, that that fundamental shift, the changing of the guard, that generational change is is going to bring with it some hopefully amazing opportunities. Um, uh, I suppose the thing that does play in the back of my mind is uh, hopefully it isn't too late, which of course comes back to that issue that you rightly point out as you know urgency you know being key in, in helping sort of conquer our fears and things like that do you do you get to sort of interact with with the millennials that younger generation much they inspire you how, how do you sort of how do you sort of sort of feel with yeah. them and you're confident yeah yeah a deep area of focus for the case foundation we probably have conducted the largest research project in the world which took place over a decade looking at their perceptions and beliefs around social good, things like how do they want to use their capital, 
How do they look at the jobs they want to have? How do they look at their role in the world, et cetera? And it's been very exciting. We just released a decades-long uh, summary of our work with millennials. I have been known to call them the greatest generation. And let's say the next gen the greatest generation. And what I'll say to you, Adam, is, you know, that's a dad talking over their mm. work. Because actually, you should be really proud. I think yeah. we need young people. We need young people who will look in the face of bad things and say, I can find a good way forward. And um, sounds like you have two remarkable daughters. Yes, uh, they are. And uh, of course, they, they keep me inspired in the sort of mission driven work that we do. Um, Jean, I'm going to have to I'm going to have to sort of um, uh, wind up and bring our uh, conversation to, to a close here. One reason being uh, I, I don't want to reveal everything on this podcast because, of course, your, your keynote uh, in D.C., uh, we're really going to um, uh, sort of really provide the platform there for you to go into more detail. So really looking forward to that. Um, so you've been very, very, very generous with your with your time. Um, for those that are listening on the podcast that uh, don't know much more about the work of the Case Foundation, strongly recommend uh, strongly recommend you go to the website. Um, uh, Gene, I'd imagine that's the place for people to sort of head head to find out more about the organisation, no doubt. Yeah. Yes, it's casefoundation.org. Yeah, and um, uh, um, Gene mentioned uh, in that that last little sort of conversation there the um, the millennial um, sort of impact report work, ten years of uh, of research, uh, incredible. So uh, heaps of heaps of resources and inspiring. Uh, uh, assets for so for folks to get a hold of. So, um, look, Jean, it's been it's been fantastic. We're we're looking um, uh, so much to having you uh, keynote at Smart Cities Week in in DC on the Tuesday morning, October uh, October first. Uh, head to our our website, smartcitiesweek.com. Um, thanks for talking to us again on this podcast, Jean, and we look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks. Thanks so much, Adam. Great to be with you. Excellent. Thanks so much, Jean.